Greetings, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Decision Hour. I'm your host, Adam Bird. Uh, Patty could not be with us today. She's stuck in traffic, but uh, she'll get with us in the next one. Folks, I'm super excited about this interview today. Uh, the gentleman that we have on the line with us right now has been, uh, I'm honored to call him a dear friend. Uh, he's a mentor. Uh, I've known him for ooh, several years, um, and the stories that he's going to share with us today and, and some of the things that he's done uh, throughout his lifetime are just absolutely amazing. I want everybody to grab a pen and a piece of paper because you definitely want to take some notes. Um, he joined the Army Air Corps um, back in the day, so it's kind of dating it a little bit. Army Air Corps as a private and many, many years later after service, uh, he retired as a major general. And uh, I'm just, I'm so truly blessed, like I said, to call him a friend and uh, honored to have him on. So without further ado, uh, let me introduce you to my good friend, Carl Schneider. Carl, how you doing today? Oh, doing great. <laughs> well, good. I appreciate you taking time. I know you're a busy man. Uh, it never seems like we can't keep you to sit still for more than 10 minutes. <laughs> Got to keep moving. Yeah. <laughs> well, Carl, why don't you uh, why don't you start off by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself? Okay, I was raised on a farm uh, out on the plains of West Texas uh, during the Depression and the Dust Bowl and uh, th through World War II, and uh, worked on a farm and milked cows and fed pigs and. Uh, chopped cotton and pull cotton, which I hated. And I uh, grew up uh, with a family, wonderful family. My parents were great. I had five brothers and sisters. And we're all now in our 80s and 90s and all still kicking and doing great. Just had a big reunion down in Texas. So I've really been blessed. I've had uh, a wonderful life and uh, a lot of excitement. So uh, I'll give more details uh, with any questions you may have, Adam. Awesome. Well, listen, so you start off in Texas and uh, what I got to ask, I want to jump right into it because you got a lot of great stories. And um, one of the things that you, I remember you talking about was, was one day you saw, you were out in the, I think it was a cotton field with one of your brothers and uh, you saw a plane fly overhead and you decided that you wanted to get into the military. You wanted to be a pilot. How did, how did, your military career kind of kick off, kind of paint that picture for the listeners and what the atmosphere was like for you at that time. Well, as I said, we, we were during the depression. No, no one had any money. Uh, my mother always said we're poor, but we're, uh, we're broke, but we're not poor. We never thought poor. And, uh, we had to chop cotton and feed pigs and all that. And my brother and I hated the cotton because it's a very demeaning. You, you chop cotton in the summer, chop the weeds out of the cotton plants so uh, they won't uh, freeze out the, the cotton. And then in the fall, you have to, in the old days, you had to pull a sack, big old uh, gunny sack or big old long sack, and you had to crawl along the rows and pull the bowls off of the stalk and put them in the sack. And uh, by the time you got to the end of the row, you had a, about probably 50 or 60 pounds of sack of, of uh cotton and your head hurt, your back hurt, your feet hurt, and uh, just miserable way to do it. So anyway, we were out doing, I think we were chopping cotton this time early in the summer, 
and this old bi-wing airplane came over and did acrobatics right over us. And I, I was probably nine or 10 around somewhere around there. And I told, turned to my brother and I said, that's what I'm going to do. I'm getting out of this cotton patch. I'm going to be a pilot. He said, okay, well I will too. So we started thinking airplanes immediately and reading everything we could get. And then we ultimately joined the civil air patrol and got very active in that. So we had some pretty good background, but we knew what we wanted to do. And both of us went on to become pilots. And what year was that, Carl, when you joined the Army Air Corps? Well, I, I went into the Army. It was actually the Army Air Force, uh, Adam. It, I think they changed the name to Air Force during World War II. It was Corps before that. But Army Air Force, I joined in 18 September 1946. And uh, everybody thinks that uh, the end of World War II was uh, – when MacArthur signed the peace treaty in Tokyo Bay in the in the fall of 1945, but uh, many folks don't re- remember we had about 13 million men in uniform scattered all over the world. They had a right to come home. We had to demobilize them and get them back home. We had uh, had Japanese, German, and Italian prisoners working on farms all over the United States. Ones had been captured in, in combat around the world. And we had hundreds of war brides. Many of the men had married women in other countries, so they had a right to come to the States. And we had equipment scattered in every nook and cranny of the world, airplanes, tanks, uh, artillery, you name it. So all of that had to be sorted out by the what's called the War Assets Administration. So it took a year and a half to do all that. And so President uh, Truman signed the official end of World War II on 31 December 1946, a year and a half after Tokyo Bay. So I enlisted on 18 September 1946. So I did not go overseas. I wasn't in combat, but I really am a World War II veteran by three months <laughs> before the end of, the, of World War II. So that's a little bit of the past history that many folks may not know or have forgotten. Wow. So you started, uh, so it, it all started 18 September 1946. You go to boot camp, right? I'm, assu- I'm assuming that's where you, you went to boot camp. What was your what was your first job in the military, Carl? Well, it, it's, uh, it's, it's sort of humorous. I've been an old farm kid. I was just dumb as dirt. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't even know there was a dumb. I didn't know there's a West Point or Annapolis or any of those things. You know, we, we didn't have we didn't have a radio until I was probably about the same age there, uh, 10 or 12 years old. So I didn't know much about the world, but I knew I wanted to fly. So I went down to the recruiting office and told the, uh, the old sergeant, I said, I want to be a fighter pilot. And he said, sign right here, son. We'll get you right in. Well, you know how recruiting are. <laughs> recruiting sergeants, now they'll grab you. And I, they'd found a fish and they're going to help meet their quota. So they signed me right up. And uh, I found out that pilot training wasn't even open. Uh, they closed uh, pilot training at the end of in, 45 because we didn't need extra pilots at that time. Anyway, I went through basic training down at Lackland Air Force Base or Lackland Field, they called it then in San Antonio, and then got orders to uh, Lowry Field, uh, Colorado. And just a little aside there, all the bases were called fields at that time when it became uh, separate Air Force, then we call them Air Force bases. So if I interchange the names, why well, that's exp- explanation there. Then I went up to um, finished basic training, went up to Lowry, to Denver, Colorado, and they wanted to make me a, a auto mechanic. That's what I, all my tests that I took. And 
I didn't want to do that. I wanted to work on airplanes. So never being too shy, I went over to personnel on a Saturday morning and walked into personnel and told that there was, it was Saturday morning, only one sergeant working in the middle of personnel, a great big room. And I said, sir, I don't want to go to, to uh, auto mechanics. He said, don't call me, sir. I'm a sergeant. <laughs> and I said, yes. Yeah, I said, yes, Sergeant. Anyway, I said, I want anything to do with airplanes. He said, okay, let me look here. So he looked through his records and he said, I got one slot here for remote control turret mechanic. It's a tough course and a big share of the class washes out. Uh, but if you do graduate, uh, you'll be promoted from buck private to corporal, which was a big promotion. I didn't, I never pinned on a PFC stripe. So anyway, graduated from that uh, the, the top of the class and Really wasn't that hard, frankly, but a lot of guys washed out. <laughs> and then went to Roswell, New Mexico in the 509th Bomb Group, which was the uh, the group that dropped the atomic bombs in Japan. Of course, I was there after that. I wasn't there during the during that time. But anyway, a very prestigious uh, unit. It's now flying B-1s out of, uh, I think, no, B-2s, I think, out of Missouri, Whiteman, Missouri. So anyway, that's uh, how I ended up. Uh, going in enlisted and and then uh, my finally got into the opened up aviation cadets and that's uh that's the next story of going to aviation cadets all right so yeah so we, now being at the prestigious unit what you know you're on the the show is called the decision hour what prompted you to what made that decision I, other than you probably thinking back to the days in the cotton field with your brother nine ten years old and you said you wanted to be a pilot is that what prompted you? Did you put yourself in a position to where, okay, now there's an opening to be a pilot or to go to flight school? Was Or did they come to you and say, hey, Carl, we have this position open. We know you want to come in. Or was it was it more or less, hey, I'm, I'm, this is what I'm doing. I'm, I'm going. Well, I was always, I knew I wanted to go to pilot training. So I, was, I scanned the bulletin board every day. I'd heard a rumor that they were going to open pilot training again. And I walked over to the bulletin board one morning and here was a, a notice that report to building number so-and-so uh, if you want to sign up for uh, uh, aviation cadets so i was the first one in line i knocked on the door when they opened up and uh, i had to take all these different tests it was called stay nine test uh, intelligence test uh, coordination a lot of different testing physical tests and so forth and so i passed everything and the uh, or the aviation cadet captain said, well, you passed everything, so, but it's not open yet, so uh, you go on down to your next duty assignment, and then we'll let you know when it opens. So that's when I went on to Roswell, New Mexico, and that's where they finally um, gave me the orders. It said, uh, you've got orders to go. Uh, you have uh, qualification, but he said, you're, you're short on one. You're short. We've lost your audiometer test, your hearing test said you passed it but we we lost it so i said you got to go up to albuquerque and get your audiometer test we don't have one here at roswell so he said there's a c-47 uh, down at the flight line that's going up to to uh albuquerque right away he said run back to your barracks and get the overnight kit and they'll take you up there and you go in and get your audiometer test and, and come back in the morning so i ran up run, ran down being a naive kid and i didn't even check out with the orderly room i assumed that he he would do it but he didn't so <laughs> i get up to albuquerque and and take the test and pass it okay and had some 
relatives there, my aunt and uncles. I went over to their house to spend the night and went back to base ops the next morning, expecting the C-47 to go back to Roswell, and no C-47. <laughs> and the, the sergeant there said, well, it's not coming today, so just cool your heels and we'll come back in the morning. So I did that. Went the next morning, still wasn't there. Anyway, four days later, I finally the airplane came in, and I, I got back into my base at uh, – Roswell and walked in the orderly room and the old sergeant was just livid. He was uh, my first sergeant. He said, son, you've been AWOL for four days, but he said, you're lucky. He said, your orders came through to get your, go to aviation cadets and we'll give you two hours to get off this base and get out of here or I'm going to court martial you. So I had to <laughs> put all the stuff in my great big duffel bag and run around to all these different places and clear the base. And uh, he was waiting at the front gate and uh, he, <laughs> I came puffing through the <laughs> puffing through the front gate with my B four bag uh, or my duffel bag and and then hitchhiked five hundred miles to San Antonio to go pilot trade. <laughs> what I love that's that's one of the stories I absolutely love. That's just <laughs> well, I was pretty. I, I lucked out many times. The good Lord looked after me. I guess I must have worn out a whole a squadron of angels looking at looking over my shoulder because I really came close. <laughs> so, and that time frame, Carl, what was what what was the um uh what was the the plane that you what was the the training plane that you guys learned how to to fly? Well, I had never I had not flown uh, before I went in the Air Force. My brother that went in later, I uh, had, had soloed, I'd flown in a, a little Aronka champion a couple of t- champion a time, a couple of times with him and I knew I liked it, but we, we were an experimental class. We we're the first uh, cadet class, uh, full cadet class after world war two. So they, they knew we were going to be going into jets. So they accelerated our class. So we started off in the T six, which is about a 650 horsepower, aircraft that was the advanced trainer in world war ii and we started in that and the big part of the class washed out because there's a lot of airplane to handle for a young kid and then we flew 220 hours in that and then uh went to uh uh, williams air force base in tucson flew the p-51 for 80 hours and that was it that was a combat airplane in world war ii so we were really accelerated and 60% 60% of the class washed out. Wow. So they just bat your eyeballs the wrong way. You were out of there. They, they really didn't need a lot of pilots and they didn't tolerate any deviation from anything. You just, uh, I had seven roommates wash out. <laughs> Nobody would sit with room with me after that. Wow. So, uh, but I made it through and graduated in the top part of the class and, and, uh, went on to my first jet squadron. And, and where was that? Shaw, South Carolina. I uh, got orders to, uh, they had uh, the old P-84, and I'll explain that. They, uh, in World War II and before, they called them pursuit airplanes. It was P-84, P-50, I mean, P-51, P, uh, P-46, P-47, and so forth. And when we became a separate service, they changed it to F for fighter, fighter, F-84, F-80, and so forth. Anyway, I checked into this uh was one of the very first operational jet fighter squadrons in the Air Force at Shaw, the 20th Fighter Wing, as saw the airplane in the morning, and the ops officer gave me a little questionnaire. Of, we had no dual cockpits in those days. We had no simulators, had no academic training. And uh, the way they did it in World War II is just get an airplane and go fly. Well, <laughs> they, that's, they were still doing that. So 
I, I read through this manual and filled out a bunch of questions of what's the takeoff speed and the gear down and gear up and uh, maneuvers and so forth and went up to lunch and came back and and the ops officer said, well, come on out the airplane and we'll, I'll show you around and do a pre-flight. So we didn't even have jet helmets and we, we used our old P-51 helmet and the, uh, and you'd go down to the sporting goods store and get you an old football helmet put over <laughs> your P-51 helmet. So you look like Newt Rockney uh, and put that under there. Oh my anyway, God. he loaned me his helmet and we went out and did the pre-flight and got in the cockpit and he said, uh, do you remember how to start it? And I said, no, sir, I, I think I remember, but he said, well, I'll do it for you. So he reached in the cockpit and he, he could put a ladder up by the, uh, by the cockpit there. So he reached in there and started the engine. And I just sat in there looking like it was really interesting. And the next thing I knew, he just slapped me on the shoulder and said, go fly. And he pulled the ladder down, walked back in operation. <laughs> so here I'm just sitting there in an idling airplane with never flown before. And, and, uh, anyway, I poured the power to it and tacked it out and, and I remembered what the frequency was for for the tower, and so I got takeoff uh, uh, instructions and took off and pulled the gear up. And I was, man, this is easy compared to the P fifty one. Had uh, no torque, straight line thrust, and no swivel steering. So I went up and did acrobatics and everything. Came in, shot touch and goes, walked in operations. He said, "Ah, oh, you survived." <laughs> and uh, the deal was that <laughs> you killed yourself. You weren't any good anyway. Just get rid of them early. So that was pretty rough. Pretty rugged. <laughs> now that was, was pretty stupid, frankly. My my grandson now is a captain in the Air Force, flying F-15s over in uh, North Carolina. I think it's taken him over three years to get fully combat ready. Of course, a much more uh, complex airplane. But uh, anyway, that uh, <laughs> and he's had many dual rides. He's had many uh, a lot of simulator time, a lot of instruction, and so forth. So. Anyway, those were sort of wild and crazy days. And when we became a separate Air Force then, and the next year, well, I guess we had already done it in 47, but we almost threw out the Army regulations and started over. So anything you thought you're big enough to do, I well, have at it. Just go go do it. And if you survived, well, you're a good pilot. If you didn't, well, okay. That's, that's quite a different way to hand choose and wash people out of the program. <laughs> yeah. yeah. A lot of them, uh, well, a lot of them got killed that way too. It was, yeah. it was a stupid way to do it, but they didn't was, have, well, I mean, one way to do it if you survive. I, I reckon they probably didn't have a lot of the family versions of those planes back then where, where you had an instructor in the back where I, I think a lot of them do. I remember I was down in uh, at Davis Monthan two years ago uh, and, and they, they do a lot of training with the F-16s for other other nations will will fly in and they do their – and they got the family version of the F-16, F-16 there. Well, well, with the first twin cockpit uh, airplane that I saw, I, was, I went from there, flew there for a year, and then went to Okinawa. And uh, we uh, – one morning – I'd been there about three or four months, and one morning the pop saucer came in and said, Carl, we had a – a T-33 coming down from Tokyo that uh, engine flamed out and it did stick into Kadena, which was about 20 miles north of Naha, where we were on southern Okinawa. He said, go up and pick it up. So I, I got a ride up there and got in this uh, twin cockpit uh, T-33 and it had a different canopy and had different start procedures. So I, had to, I got the manual out and read up on how to start it. And uh, taxied out there in the runway and just took off and the whole cockpit went zero zero in fog 
and condensation. Well, it turned out, I, I guess I'd read it in the manual there while I was waiting to take off. You have to turn the, the rheostat up to blow the cockpit up. <laughs> Here I'm taking off in a strange airplane with a zero, zero in the cockpit. <laughs> and uh, that was the first time I'd ever seen a twin cockpit airplane. From then on, of course, typically we always gave dual rides for new pilots and gave them two or three rides in a dual cockpit and instructed them before they got into a single seat cockpit like I had to do. That is something else. What? So I, I'm going to assume, Carl, that back back then, you know, and I remember uh, reading in your in your book uh, that you just that you put out here recently. And, and folks, write this down: uh, Jet Pioneer, a fighter pilot's memoir. Um, which is a great book, and you can get that on Amazon uh, right now. Again, it's, uh, go ahead, Adam. You just go to jetpioneer.com, and that'll take you to the website, which will then take you to Amazon. Perfect. And we do it. We have it now in the hardback, softback, uh, paperback, audio, uh, Kindle, and Audible now. Yeah, it, I, I I had the uh, the Audible uh, version of it, and I listened to it since I travel quite a bit, and and I I love. Absolutely love it. it. It sounded like in the book you you talked about um, you back in those days you moved around quite a bit. I know in like the military nowadays that it's, it's usually when you get stationed somewhere you're usually there for you know anywhere from two to four years and then you probably get orders cut somewhere else. It's it seemed like back then you were moving around uh, much more than than that. You're moving around quite a bit. Was is that an accurate statement? Well, I always kid to say I couldn't hold a steady job, but really, <laughs> I, was, I, I, was, I was going through basic training, and we had an old Corporal Schmidt who had hung on after World War II, obviously couldn't get a job anywhere else, and he was sort of an uncouth old character. And he said, don't just guys never volunteer for nothing. <laughs> and I just liked the old Corporal Schmidt. I said, I'm just going to volunteer for everything from now on. So a lot of that moving was at my uh, – my volunteering because I, I like a lot of variety and if a new job or a new airplane came out I'd volunteer to go do it so it advanced my career I guess but that really wasn't the intention I just love a lot of a lot of excitement a lot of new new ideas and opportunities so I think I'm living in my 35th house now by last count <laughs> that uh, we've moved a lot and luckily I had a, a wife later on uh, that really liked the Air Force, never complained about it. And I, that's another story. But uh, anyway, we we moved and she never complained. And, and we'd pack up and move sometimes in two weeks to a brand new job halfway across the country. So I just enjoy flying new airplanes and taking on new jobs. Well, I want to fast forward here, just a little, or kind of rewind and, and fast forward. You, you, you've been a pilot now. Um, and then Korea. Um can you explain or kind of give the listeners a little bit? You are, uh, you had some flights over in Korea, if I'm not mistaken, if I remember correctly, what was, what was yeah, that like? Yeah, we had, uh, we had, uh, when the Korean war started on the 25th of June, 1950, the North Koreans came rolling down almost unopposed to what's called the Pusan perimeter, which is just a very small corner of uh, Southern Korea. And, uh, the, um, the first outfit that got involved in combat was out of Itazuki, Japan, at uh, Kyushu. They started flying combat against the uh, North Koreans, and 
I had to go up to uh, Masawa, which was, I got orders to go up and pick up a brand new airplane, a new F-80C model, which was a much improved model. And uh, I went up there and picked it up and, and uh, I decided I wanted to go ahead and start flying combat right away. So I, <laughs> I checked in with this, <laughs> this outfit down in South in Japan and went into to the office out there and I said, I want to start flying combat with you guys. And he said, oh, we don't have any airplane. I said, I brought my own. <laughs> so, <laughs> they, they fueled me up and hung bombs and rockets on there and I took off with these guys and flew several missions. And one day I came in from a mission and the, the full colonel was at my airplane. And he said, are you a, a member of this outfit, Lieutenant? And I said, no, sir. He said, well, I just got a call from your commander. They found out where you were and said, he said, get your tail back down to Okinawa. So I flew back to Okinawa and Wing Commander chewed me out and, and uh, said, now get down there and teach these other guys how to fly combat. You're the only guy that knows how to fly combat. So <laughs> I was always sort of on the ragged edge of getting in trouble. But then we moved up to Itazuki, the same plane, place I'd been flying out of in September of uh, 1950 and we had a lot of uh, convoys would coming right down in broad daylight and also at night all the way from north korea up along the yellow so we could shoot up a lot of of tanks and trucks and and troops uh because if we if we hadn't done that i don't think we'd have held on to the southern part of the korea there and i remember my my first combat mission was out of Itazuki there was late in the afternoon i was shooting up a whole bunch of trucks on a on a convoy and bullets were coming from every direction and just about sundown looked like a solid wall of bullets 50 calibers and all kind of stuff and that man i gotta fly 99 more of these anyway uh i flew 100 <laughs> combat missions there and we lost uh, 22 out of 32 buddies and so that was a tough tough war and that was got shot up almost every mission i never got shot up in the body but i got shot up almost every mission in the airplane and and uh lost a lot of good friends man what uh, and then and then fast forward, uh, you know Korea. You go you go. Where do you go from from Korea, Carl? After after you leave Korea, or they they call a ceasefire. Um, well, I I wanted to fly another hundred combat missions in F eighty six. As being a you know young and stupid and invulnerable, you didn't think you're ever going <laughs> to get hit or get shot down. I want I volunteered to fly another hundred in F eighty six because I wanted to go up and hassle with the MiGs more. Yeah. I did have 12 missions where I got to hassle with them and I shot up a couple of them and they both went in the clouds and, and my gun camera didn't fix, didn't work on both missions. So I didn't get credit for them, but, uh, I really thought that'd be a big, big, a lot of fun. So anyway, they turned me down. They said, no, you've been shot up too much. So you're going back and instruct. So I came back to Phoenix and started off in F eighties and it was a national guard outfit. And they treated me like a, uh, bum. They, uh, they, it was a real tight knit unit. And so they wouldn't let me fly. And I had more combat time than anybody there. And of course I was the only combat returnee back from Korea. Anyway, Wayne commander came in one afternoon. He said, I need one volunteer to go to Las Vegas. They're going to get F 86s, which is what I wanted to fly in Korea. And any volunteers? Yes, sir. So I, uh, I was a bachelor then, so I jumped out, got in my car, and run up the BOQ and packed my bag and drove straight to Las Vegas. And about three months later, a sergeant called me from Luke. He said, sir, we've been looking for you for three months now. You've been AWOL. And uh, I said, well, I've been flying up here. And he said, well, I'll take care of it. So 
anyway, that uh, I did a lot of that strange <laughs> stuff like that. And, and, uh, Why is it, Carl, that every story seems like, well, I left here, and then a couple months later, somebody's looking for you somewhere? <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, I ended up flying. Uh, I was flying 75 hours a month in the T-30 and the F-86, and uh, Buzz Aldrin was one of my buddies there. He was. He and I were both instructors there. And uh, I also volunteered to be the what was called the functional check flight pilot. I had three uh, gunnery students. I had to fly three missions a day with them. But I'd get up in the morning and fly a test flight, uh, a flight to just check out the airplane before it was uh, considered for operation. And then I'd fly three combat or three combat crew training missions with with guys that were going on to Korea. And then I'd go fly another mission. Then on Sunday, on Friday night, I I could go anywhere I wanted to, to uh, get nighttime and weather on the weekends because we couldn't get that in Las Vegas. So I was getting a lot of time in the F-86. Loved every minute of it. Still my all-time favorite airplane. That's awesome. Now, Carl, it kind of leads into, uh, you know, after that, I want to kind of fast forward up toward the Vietnam uh, time frame. Tell, tell the listeners a little bit about that that time and your experience over there. Well, I had the, I had an F-100 squadron. I was a squadron commander at uh, Luke Air Force Base at uh, um, uh, Phoenix, and I got a call that I had orders to go to uh, Vietnam to set up the Forward Air Controller Air Liaison Program, which is the program to coordinate air and ground. If the ground troops get hit by the bad guys, then we had airplanes set up to go in and shoot up the, the enemy and uh, get them off the back of our troops. So uh, anyway, I went over to uh, Vietnam and uh, set up that program and got a, I think I had 35 forward, uh, fighter pilots working for me. One of them is, uh, ended up one of my young lieutenants is uh, now Lieutenant General Tom McInerney, who's on Fox News quite often. But I had a great time there setting that up and Flew with the Vietnamese Air Force, and I went out with the Vietnamese Army on on missions, and and then I helped uh, set up air request nets for the special forces that were coming in. Some of the uh, special forces guys were setting up nets along the Laotian Cambodian border, so I'd go out and help them set up their nets. And I found out I'd rather be shot at in the air than on the ground. That wasn't a lot of fun <laughs> getting getting mortars, <laughs> fifty caliber shot, machine guns shooting at you. So. <laughs> but it was a that was a really exciting one. I checked in, checked into Tonsonut, and I walked into this old Quonset hut. And here was a lieutenant colonel. I was a major then. He was back in the back of this old Quonset hut, and I walked over. Then he said, "What are you doing over here?" And I said, "I'm was told to come over and set up the air liaison officer forward air controller program." He said, "Okay, you can work for me. When you get it done, you can go home." And that's the total instruction I had. So <laughs> I had to do that. But, and I had uh, Secretary McNamara and and General uh, May and a bunch of four stars and uh, congressmen come over to and while I was there to find out what was going on in Vietnam and I and my boss called me and I was up in the I was flying up in the up in the highlands I guess at Ban Matut or Contum somewhere up there and he called me and said I want you to come down and brief Secretary McNamara and I said I can do that so I went down made up a briefing gave it to Secretary McNamara and, and we got through he said Major that was a good briefing what do you think we ought to do over here now this was 1962 <laughs> I said, sir, if you want my personal opinion, if we want to win this war, we ought to bomb those targets around Hanoi and close High Park Harbor and 
and get out of here. I think we can do it in three or four months. And he jumped up and headed out the door, and right behind him was General LeMay, gave me a big thumbs up, and I made Lieutenant Colonel on the next list. So <laughs> it didn't hurt my career. <laughs> but unfortunately, that it took us 10 years to do what I told McNamara that ought to be done. Uh, we lost 58,000 troops. So it's a tragedy yeah, that uh, the politicians didn't do what they're supposed to uh, during the war. That We could have easily won that. We had no air opposition. We had no missiles. We could have bombed. It would have been a, a piece of cake to do what we did, finally did 10 years later. And, uh, folks, I hope you guys are appreciating what you're listening to right now. Carl is, is, I mean, it's the history just behind this. And a lot of the stuff that he's, he's sharing with us, we don't get to see not in the history books or you're not going to see this on news or anything like that. Uh, so it, it's great. I, I absolutely love this. Um, fast forward a little bit, Carl to, you know, after, after Vietnam and whatnot, you know, kind of you're, you're, you're nearing the end of, of, your career um actually i want to take that back let me let me go to when did you make uh your first start when you, when you made general what was that what was that like when when was that and where well, were you well uh, at that time i'd had a lot of assignments in between i went to uh, i spent a year in the marine corps on exchange duty and then i went to europe and flew f-100s and I uh, came back and had uh, some other assignments and then went to the Pentagon and went to War College. And I was a wing commander down in Moody Air Force Base in Georgia uh, many years later. And uh, I had uh, no commander, no wing commander had ever been promoted from Moody Air Force Base since the base opened in 1942. And uh, anyway, the when I went down there, the commanding general called me and he said, do you want that wing down there? And I said, yes, sir. And he said, well, if you do a good job, I'll try to get you promoted to general. If you don't, I'll fire your butt. And uh, so anyway, I we had a really good uh, really good uh, record. We didn't have a major accident for, I think, over two years there. So I, I was promoted to general. But that was the very first general that's ever promoted as the wing commander at Moody. And almost every wing commander since then has been promoted. So in fact, even the chief of staff of the Air Force later on was had been a former wing commander at Moody. <laughs> Carl, out of your your career, and you spent how many how many years total in the Air Force? Yeah, thirty two years. Thirty two years out of out of all of that, if you had just one place that you could go again or or, or do again, what where would it be, and why? Well, probably the most the most um, the greatest assignment was the 22nd Fighter Squadron at Bidberg, Germany. Uh, we had a tight-knit group. Buzz Aldrin was uh, one of my flight commanders. I had four flights, and he was my A-flight commander. So he and I uh, scuba-dived when we'd go down to Africa for gunnery. And uh, <laughs> one of the things of note was that we heard that the Russians were going to be uh, launching Sputnik, or, or a satellite. And so Buzz and I and a couple other guys would, on the weekends, we'd rent an old car and we'd go up on uh, on the beach and, and scuba dive, uh, shoot spear, uh, fish, and, and then we'd sleep out on the beach uh, on Saturday night, Friday night and Saturday night. And we're lying out on the beach at night, 1957, and I looked up and there was Sputnik going across the sky. 
And I turned to Buzz and I said, you know, someday we're going to put people out in space. I said, you're a smart guy. You ought to be one of those guys. I said, you're a West Point graduate. You're a great pilot. You got a great record. And uh, he didn't say anything, but I think that had an impact on him along with other people. So we finally got him into MIT and uh, I I wrote a recommendation, as did other folks, and he got his doctorate in uh, astronautics. So when he landed on the moon, I felt like I'd had a little small part in that that program. So, but Buzz is still. A, listen, hold on, still a, Carl. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. The the, the <laughs> I I love how you put it so nonchalantly. This is this is why I love talking to you and listening to your stories because it's it's like you know Buzz Aldrin. Like every you know everybody knows Buzz Aldrin is. If you don't, shame on you people. Uh, you know, lands on the moon and he's one of your closest friends at the time. And, and you, I mean, talking to him, gave him that idea and you, you kind of pushed him in, in that, that direction. It, it's, uh, is really something else. Well, with, I was going to say that that squadron was so wonderful. We had, we're having a reunion in Dallas in August. And I think about 99% of all of us that are still living, are going to be there. Uh, we're going to get together. The old commander is now 97 years old. I was the squadron ops officer, and he was still doing one-arm push-ups until he was about 91 or 92. So <laughs> we really had a great, great bunch of guys. Ed White had been in the outfit, and uh, uh, Pete Peterson went on to be a congressman and, and then the first ambassador to Vietnam after the war. Uh, we had one of the guys, uh, uh, Don Emingholz, flew up, bought a a sailboat and sailed home instead of flying back on an airplane. A lot of great guys in, in the outfit and some wonderful wives, all of our wonderful wives that we had. And a lot of, uh, just, a, that was the, one of the most, the best fighter squadrons in the air force. And it was the show squadron of Europe. So we always got all the VIPs coming in there, but anyway, that was probably the most enjoyable three years I spent in my 32 years. Carl, I want to, I want to go past your military career you retire and uh, what what came right after retirement well i i had uh, when i was a second lieutenant this old colonel used to hang around the bar and he'd say carl he said now what do you plan to do and i said well i want to put in a full career in the air force and he said well that's fine he said you do that you do a good job but he said be thinking about what you want to do when you get out he said that you're not going to spend your whole life in the air force so I started uh, working on, uh, I started taking uh, business management, finally got a business management degree after 19 years of going to night school, and then got a master's degree uh, three years later in international relations. So I knew I wanted to start my own business. So I started my own company and started, uh, had uh, six, uh, six uh, different divisions. I had got into all kinds of stuff, international marketing, manufacturing, real estate development, home building uh, for 30 years. So I did all that and uh, then got out of, wrapped all that up and uh, got into working with veterans. And so the last several years now, I've just focused on volunteering to help veterans uh, get transitioned out, the guys with, with, and women with PSD, PTSD or just needed jobs or whatever. So that's been a lot of fun. I've worked with Student Veterans of America, which is a really great outfit. And uh, yeah. now I'm working on a, a program now uh, to do a, with a film company here in Nashville to do a, a, a veteran channel. 
So you can go to one, veterans can go to one channel and then find the different nonprofits that might, they might need for housing or, or uh, jobs or whatever. So I'm working on that. And I'm using my two books on another program called Boot Camp with the General for the homeschooling market for boys about eight, uh, uh, six to 12, or, or to uh, sort of a Boy Scout program that the parents can run to build character in boys. We got too many boys now that are tied to their mom's apron strings and they don't get out and do all of the fun stuff that we did when I was a kid. And many of them, consequently, many of them are not really prepared to be uh, responsible adults. So that'll be launched in the homeschooling market this summer. And uh, that's been a lot of fun. And we're using both of my books, The Little House on the High Plains and Jet Pioneer as sort of a reading assignments and then I did eight hours of interview so that'll be a fun fun project you know you you, you hit you hit the nail on the head as, as always you know the, the boot camp with the general the boys thing is you know it, you know as a single parent myself of 14 years uh, it, it it's 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 tough and I'm also a certified high school teacher I taught high school uh, for a while uh, there in Glendale Arizona and you see some of the boys, uh, you know, teenagers, preteen, teenage, uh, that that kind of are misguided, or they don't have that that guidance that they really that they really need. And uh, knowing you as well as I as I do, uh, I, I could see this is going to be very successful and something that's definitely needed. Um, and, and and I also can speak on your your veteran advocacy work and, and stuff that you've done in the veteran community. I've seen that firsthand. Uh, it doesn't surprise me. Uh, I've seen it in, in Arizona, and and now I know you're in Nashville, uh, and, and you're constantly. It seems like you're always doing something, Carl. And and that's one of the things I admire most about you is is that you you don't sit still for very long. You're 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 out there, and uh, you've always had a big heart, and you. Uh, awesome work ethic i mean something that everybody should should take note on uh in itself i you know i was telling several people um about it and i said you know when they when they say they don't make them like they used to they're they're looking at carl schneider uh you know they broke the mold well, we, want to make more, we want to make more kids that do have uh, i use the story of when growing up on the farm when you're three years old you had to go pick eggs out the hen house. And that was really frightening because it chickens would pick at you. But if you broke an egg, you didn't get an egg for breakfast. So you had immediate feedback on your actions. Yeah. And if you milked a cow and you, and a cow kicked a bucket over, you didn't get milk for breakfast. So you had immediate feedback for your actions and you had a lot of responsibility as a young kid. I was driving a car at nine. I was flying a motorcycle at 14. And, uh, so, <laughs> Let me let me uh, add, yeah, let me ask you let me ask you a question, Carl. Because the the way that society is today, I mean, you're driving a car at nine, motorcycle at fourteen, actually doing chores when you're young, and and the way that society is now, people may see that like, oh, that's that that might that's irresponsible. Why would the why would you do something like that? Do you know what I mean? It, it, are, are we coming down on society so much? Or society 
making decisions on how we should raise our kids nowadays. Like, oh, that looks bad. Like dis- disciplining your kids now. Like you're not supposed to discipline your kids because that may be considered some type of, of abuse or whether it's, you know, spanking them or, or you know, telling them to go sit in timeout. Now you're giving them a complex or something like that. Are we, are we, I mean, how, do, how, it, it's frustrating for me to see because I always felt like people, you know, I've had family members judge me saying like, listen, you, you're not supposed to, you know, he's not one of your you know troops or he's not a private in the military or anything like that. Don't talk to him that way. And I was like, nobody complains about, and you've met my son, Chris, Nobody complains. Yep. Of, yeah, you've no, done a good job of raising him too. Yeah, you've you've, yeah. you've had good discipline. Thank, thank so you. I think but, but, you're you're a good example of the, yeah, the kind of father that we need more of. And and thank you. I I appreciate that. I and mean, that's the point that I'm trying to make is is like I tell these people, listen, you've never once complained about him. And they're like, no, he's a great kid. And I was like, it's because of what I've done. I'm like, don't yep. ever mistake that. I was like, if there was more of that going on. I don't think society would be the way that it is. And we probably, you know, this is kind of a long stretch, but we probably wouldn't have the issue that we have with kids today. Well, that's right. And kids need discipline and they, they really crave discipline and too many parents try to be buddy, buddy with them. Yep. My parents were firm, friendly, but fair. They were not my buddies and they were the boss. Yep. And uh, if we did something wrong, mother would give you a dose of what she called peach tree tea. You'd have to go cut a <laughs> limb off a peach tree, and she'd whack your behind pretty pretty well for it. And then she'd give you a hug and say, "Now don't do that again." And that was it. Yeah, uh, there's no, you didn't have to worry about standing in the corner or being grounded or all that garbage. So you, but you knew you were going to get disciplined and 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 properly. So I never got a spanking that I didn't very richly deserved. <laughs> I right. was a very precocious young fellow. And my brother and I got into a lot of little, little flaps and billy doos that, uh, the parents had to have at us on them and we didn't repeat them. I guarantee you, <laughs> but the parents were, were firm and they, you didn't talk back to them. You said, yes, sir. No, sir. And yes, ma'am. And, and, uh, so a lot more kids need that. They don't want, they don't want their dad to be their buddy. Their dad should be their dad. And like you're doing. And, we need more of that, and we need to give kids a little more dis- a little more space with calculated risks. Now, I'm not saying just turn them loose, and you do have predators out there and so forth, but a good example, we live here on a corner uh, in, out of Nashville, and, and I, I watch the bus stops at our corner, and I watch mothers put their kids in a car halfway down the block, drive up to the bus, sit there till the kids come home, pick them up and drive them back to the house. They don't get out and play. They don't do the kind of stuff that uh, they need to. And, and with no, no uh, recesses and no uh, baseball games at the recesses and the noon hour at school, kids don't get out and they get too chubby because they sit there on their Tweety Birds all day and, and they don't really get out and learn things. So that's what we're trying to do with the boot camp program is have the parents give them some tasks and then hold them accountable to do tasks, even if it's carrying out the garbage or uh, setting the table. You know, there's a lot of little tasks that parents have to do, even in a an urban setting, that the boys can do. And uh, so that's sort of the, the idea, to really build some character in boys and, and have them learn to be independent when they get old, like, like my generation did. Carl, for those that are listening right now, uh, you know, the, the, this goes out to a lot. Of, we got a lot of educators that are out there uh, right now. Uh, a lot of veterans, obviously, 
um, you know, a lot of he- heroes in the community. If, if, if somebody out there is listening right now, how can they reach out to you? Well, they can, uh, they can call me with the Duke FTR, D-U-K-E. It was my fighter pilot call sign, D-U-K-E-F-T-R at gmail.com. And I'd be glad to talk to them. In fact, I've, I've mentored a lot of young boys. I've, one of them is getting married. He's, he's a, a lieutenant in the Navy now. I'm going down to his wedding at Pensacola here. I'm just, just filling out the invitation, uh, accepting the invitation. But uh, just uh, we need more more uh, uh, responsible adults to mentor a lot of young young men and young women. They just need uh, they need to have they'll listen to a neighbor or an uncle or an aunt or a grandmother or grandfather. And they won't listen to their parents sometimes, but we need to have have more. Um, course we have families scattered you know we don't have like we did when i was a kid where you had aunts and uncles and grandparents right around you but they just need more good old solid counsel and they need to have more responsibilities they're growing up yeah i i've noticed myself in being in the uh, as a teacher a lot of the you know i i usually got dealt the the kids that were on suspension or whatnot and you come in and once you get to know them you realize they're not bad kids it's it's they're they're there's no discipline at home. One and two. A lot of these kids will act out because they're not. They don't. They don't get that discipline. And when you, I, I was kind of the disciplinary person, and I got respected really quickly because it was what they were looking for, and they knew they couldn't get away with stuff. Yep. And then once, once you straighten them out, and then the, the important thing is, is I, I listened. I would listen to them. I would explain why they're in trouble. But then I would turn around and I would listen to see why they're acting out and how they, and then show them how they can fix that. And after that, you, you develop a trust and a bond with them. And I'd have kids that were, you know, in my class because they were in trouble. And then, you know, weeks later, they would come hang out in my class for their lunchroom. And I, they'd walk in the room. I was like, you in trouble again? They're like, no, we're on a lunch break. Can we hang out in here? We just want to hear your stories and, and hear what you're teaching today. And 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 for me, I was just like, that's what they were missing in their lives. And, and I think a lot of parents, unfortunately, uh, don't discipline their kids and they don't listen uh, as, as much and they don't see that and they try to just kind of push it off and think that's all right. So I, I love the fact that, uh, that there's this boot camp coming, uh, for these, these young men, Carl, you got several books that are out. Why don't you go ahead and share where people can get your books right now? Well, I, I wrote the first book called little house on the high plains. And it's, uh, about my growing up in an 800 square foot house with no electricity, no running water. And, and no indoor bathroom. And during the depression, the Dust Bowl on a dry land farm in West Texas. <clears throat> and it's about the story, each one of my siblings, I and my siblings all wrote what we remember about growing up during that era, which was a pretty tough time for the country. <clears throat> and uh, then the second part of the book is what we all did after we grew up. We all went to college and we've all been successful in our respective careers uh, brother next to me as i said went in the air force and it put in his time and then got out and got into business for many years my younger brother went in the army and put in a career and then got out and got his phd and taught school for 20 years and uh, two of my sisters got education degrees and taught school and uh, one sister does not have a degree but she is educated she's probably gotten enough for two phds so we've that was one of the big things my parents said you kids are all going to get a college education we can't help you we don't have any money so i had to shovel cow manure out of the college farm barn uh, 
that first year of college to pay my expenses. Plus, I had a $30 scholarship to pay my room and board at the Texas Technological College. But they, uh, then the, that's called Little House on the High Plains. And the second one is Jet Pioneer Fighter Pilot's Memoir. You can just go to jetpioneer.com and that'll take you to the main, then you can order from Audible. So, I mean, from Amazon. So they're available. I, I give quite a few talks. I'm talking to uh, the Agriculture uh, Club of Tennessee uh, tomorrow. A lot of folks here. And then I'm talking to a women's group down at Tullahoma next week. And I talk to aviation groups. Anybody wants a speaker that wants to hear me pontificate, I'm happy to tell them stories. So, <laughs> And then I sell my books. And then I give the profits to veterans groups. So it's a, a lot of fun. I absolutely love it. Carl, you were coming up on time here. Is there anything you'd like to say to our listeners? Any closing words? Well, just uh, really uh, look after our country. We've got a very insidious uh, uh, force that are that's trying to under undermine all of the culture that we have. We've got people that are really not looking after the best interests of our country, in my my opinion. So you need to get <clears throat> get involved in getting good people into office in your local area that will re- represent the the fundamentals of our country. You know, we've lost thousands and thousands of, of men and women that have uh, died in defense of our country. And uh, I'm really proud of it. I, uh, we've got the best country in the world. And of course, I've been in many, many countries. And we just, everybody needs to get involved in their local community and do everything they can to uh, uh, help us bring back some of those values that we, we've lost, in my opinion, in our culture. So just get involved. You can get into all kinds of volunteer activities from uh, Habitat for Humanity to just all kinds of different things that you can do. So I just recommend everybody get active and, and uh, defend our country because we've, we've got a lot of folks that would like to bring us down internally. And when you go in the military, you, you swear to defend and uh, against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And in my opinion, we got a lot of folks in this country that are really not looking after our best interests. So just get involved in, in your local community and your state and your, and your country. There you have it, folks. You heard it right there from the general. Get involved. We appreciate it, Carl. Thank you. You bet. Good to talk to you and come to see us. Absolutely. Got plenty of room. Love to have you. Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Carl Schneider, Major General, United States Air Force, retired, Mr. Carl Schneider. And uh, as I said before, I'm, I'm just absolutely blessed that I get to call that man a friend, uh, a mentor, uh, and he's, he's a living history book. It's just, it's all the stories and, and stuff that he, uh, has to tell. And, and we didn't even, I mean, we just touched on not even the tip of the iceberg of the stuff that he's done with, uh, not only his military career and some of the stories, but in business, uh, as well. Um, and there was a lot of, decisions in there in this this episode today um definitely check out his his uh his book jet pioneer go to jetpioneer.com uh you can get a hard copy soft copy uh it's on audible i i'm i listen to a lot of audio books so i i listen to the book it's a great great listener a great read again that's jet pioneer 
uh, com, And uh, we'll have him on again, uh, kind of a part two uh, follow-up uh, with Carl or the major uh, general and, and see what, uh, what else is going on. And like I said, he just does a ton for the veteran community uh, and whatnot. So listen, that's all the time that we have today. Uh, I want to give a huge shout out to Heroes Media Group, our home network. Uh, thank them and all the people and all the great shows that are coming on board and that are on uh, board that have been with the network for a while. Uh, just a great group of people that we've surrounded ourselves with. To learn more, go to www.heroesmediagroup.com. And, uh, you know, if you're interested in becoming part of the family, send us a note and, uh, and let us know. Um, we have uh, Primal Urge foods uh great organization they do the meat stick giveaways or we've been doing the meat stick giveaways both for uh, heroes media group and here on the decision hour patty and myself will be doing another one here uh soon so stay tuned for that uh code of longboards code of mike uh veteran owned organization they love their skate they're it's like a skateboard on steroids is what i always say these things are absolutely awesome and the uh artwork on them is just beautiful you got to have one. And if you're a college kid listening to this, you'll never be late for class again. Check them out at CodaLongboards.com. That's K-O-T-A Longboards.com. Uh, also need to give a huge thank you to Rick's Roasters. Uh, Sean Ricks owns Rick's Roasters uh, down in Fredericksburg, Virginia. They do the Heroes Media Group, uh, Heroes United Coffee Blend, as well as the uh, HMG's R&RT. Uh, you can get both of those on the website at heroesmediagroup.com or go to ricksroasters.com and purchase it directly from them. Uh, we also want to give a thank you to Frag Out Clothing Company, another veteran-owned organization. Uh, our buddy Nick has done some T-shirts for us, and we appreciate all the work that he's done. He's got some cool shirts, so make sure you check him out. And that's fragoutcc.com. And always... Uh, Big thanks to our buddy Dave Bray over at Dave Bray USA for providing the outro music uh, for this show. Hey, check him out and his new album, Music on a Mission. Go to DaveBrayUSA.com. Until next time, folks, thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to The Decision Hour.